But we're in Mark 2 this morning. And the passage that Pastor Nathan read to you is one of the most significant scenes, I think, in the Gospels, especially early on in Jesus' ministry. And in fact, this little scene, verses 23 through 28, will sort of form the fulcrum of what we are going to talk about this morning. Our text for this morning actually runs from verse 18 down through verse 5 of chapter 3. So 2.18 through verse 5. We're going to cover all those verses. And I think what we see here in, these, in this section is really a collision of sorts. A collision of the gospel of man with the gospel of God. It's two separate gospels that are made to collide. And what happens is extremely significant for us. But let me begin by asking you this question. That what do you think, imagine in your minds, what would happen, what would life for us look like if Satan had control? If Satan took over our city, our towns, what would life look like? I think our natural imagination, our normal thoughts would run to something entirely hellish and dark. Something, a place full of nudity and violence and alcohol. And all of those things flood the street corners on every single street. But I think, actually, Satan's reign would look a lot different than that. And in fact, a... Preacher many years ago, Donald G. Barnhouse of the famous 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, once surmised this during one of his sermons. He said, if Satan took over Philadelphia, all of the bars would be closed, pornography would be banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. That's Satan's reign. It's a reign and a life in which Christ is not proclaimed. He is okay with you coming to church so long as you are being told about yourself or being told about someone else other than Jesus. His scheme, the devil's scheme, keep this in mind, is not to annihilate the gospel because he knows he cannot do that. He cannot annihilate what Jesus has done. But you know what he can do? He can adulterate what Jesus has done. And he does that by clouding the truth of Jesus Christ and marring it and muddying it and mixing it with error. This is Satan's scheme to mix the truth of the gospel with a little bit of error. And just that little bit can ruin all of the truth. Paul calls him, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the angel of light. This is our enemy. He's an angel of light who is okay with you coming to church so long as the truth, the, the radical truth of the gospel which Jesus proclaims is not proclaimed. He's okay with that. His plot your enemy's plot remains to steal your heart and swindle your faith by, by deceiving you with another gospel. Not the gospel of God, but some other gospel. 
And he enjoys this plot. He enacts this plot gleefully as men and women come to churches all across our country and are deceived by words that sound good, that sound appealing, that sound as if they are uh, words of truth but are void of anything of the truth because they are void of Christ. Let me just say that if you are listening to sermons, which I would advise you to do throughout your week, if you're listening to a sermon and the preacher does not mention the name of Christ, you best believe that you are not hearing the truth. And it's probably time to listen to a different podcast. (laughs) It's time for a different resource. Christ is the truth which we cling to most preciously. And he's successful. The devil is successful so long as that Christ is not preached. So long as he remains clouded and confused. And the greatest danger, I would say, the greatest danger is just that very reality. The reality that God's gospel, the enemies of God's gospel, and the greatest dangers to God's gospel are not these anti-gospels that are outside of the church. They are the counterfeit gospels that exist within the church. Gospels that make no room for Jesus, the Savior. They are entirely inundated with making our lives better, changing our fates, and giving us uh, better uh, ways to live. But that is not the gospel. And such is why Mark here, at the beginning of this book, he starts it out by proclaiming the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's affirming right from the outset, as we have seen, that there is no other gospel when it comes down to it. In the final analysis, this is the only piece of good news. All the other things that go around claiming they are the good news are not in any way good. This, Mark is saying, this is the good news. This is the gospel. And here in our text this morning, he brings... All of those false gospels into collision with this gospel of God. Those false ideologies and false religions of man come into conflict when Jesus, the Christ, the unexpected Savior, comes and starts declaring the gospel of the kingdom. And here this morning we have three separate scenes in which we see that collision before us. Look at verses 18 through 22 this morning. Here we have a collision of celebration over ceremony. Celebration over ceremony. Look at it again. Verse 18 of chapter 2. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees used to fast. And they come and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then shall they fast in those days. Jesus here is confronted by two groups of disciples, the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist. They come up to him and they confront Jesus himself over his apparent disregard of this rite of ceremonial fasting. Why are you not going along with the rules and the traditions of the day, Jesus? You are claiming to be a devout religious man, but you are not following our religious traditions. 
You are not fasting. These Pharisees are here questioning the devoutness and the seriousness with which Jesus conducted his ministry very early on. They couldn't be possibly as devout as we are. We are fasting. Yes, twice a week the Pharisees would claim. They were adhering to rigorous religion and this was a point of pride for the Pharisees. You might remember that the Pharisee who is praying in the temple from Luke chapter 18, he boasts that he fasts twice in a week. Something that was beyond what the law of Moses required. They were boasting in their fasting. They're coming up to Jesus and saying, why are your disciples not as religious as we are? And Jesus answers them. I love his response. He says, can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bride is with them? He is referencing actually a very thing that John the Baptist has already claimed about Jesus at this time. I think the reference is from chapter 3 of the gospel of John. Which calls Jesus the bridegroom who has come. And here he says, I am that bridegroom. I am here. And my disciples are doing well to not fast. Because they are my wedding party, you might say. And what is the job of any good wedding party? Joy. The only job, the only duty of a wedding party is rejoicing. To rejoice in the fact that these two have become one. And these two are now here. You see, marriages in this culture were, married, were uh, accompanied by week-long feasts and festivities. We think that we have uh, crazy weddings and over-the-top weddings. Uh, these had week-long weddings. That would be quite a sight to see, I think. But everyone knows why they are there. There's no confusion. If you are invited to this wedding, you know why you are there. You are not there to fast. Not to mourn, not to be sorrowful anymore. Your job there as part of the wedding is to enjoy that festivity, that feast. To celebrate, to commemorate this new family that is now here. There's no room for fasting there. There's no room for sorrow. There's no room for uh, repenting in that place. It's a place of joy. It's a place of celebration. Such is why he is saying here that it would be inappropriate now for my disciples to fast. Because I am here. The one who rejoiced over is here. The bridegroom is in their midst. This was the new message that Jesus was preaching. It was a religion of rejoicing, a religion of celebration, which is over and beyond the ceremony. It was a religion that was entirely new that he was preaching. And he, he, he proves that by claiming what he does there, that he is the bride, and he's beginning a new family. But also look at 2 verse 21, because he uses two pictures to sort of amplify this newness that he is preaching. He says, No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filled it taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse. You patch A garment with a fresh piece of cloth and it makes a worse tear. You wash that new garment and it shrinks. It shrinks away from the old and it makes a worse tear. 
You don't put on something new that is old. He says also, verse 22, And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, else the new wine doth burst the bottles, and the wine is spilled, and the bottles will be marred. But new wine must be put into new bottles. Bottles here is better translated as skins. These were leather bags that were were used to carry wine. And see, what he's saying here, these old dry wineskins would drop, become dry from no use and be brittle. And if you use one of those old wineskins to pour new wine into, it would break up, it would burst apart. And you would lose both the wineskin and the wine. You would lose both things. He says, the, the bottles doth burst, he says, and the wine is spilled. Do you lose both New wine requires new wineskins. And in both pictures, he is emphasizing the point that the new thing in old surroundings results in the new thing being weakened and broken. And yes, perhaps even lost altogether. The new thing in old surroundings is an impossibility. What you are trying to do, Pharisees, he is saying, you disciples of the Pharisees, you cannot put the new work of my gospel into the old religious and ceremonial rituals of the past. It is something entirely new. He was saying to them that you have made this religion a joyless burden. You have inundated your people with ceremonies and rites and regulations and things that uh, are burdening your people. And this is incompatible with the gospel that I am preaching. You see, these Pharisees were bound by their formalities, by their traditions, by their ceremonies. And they were blind here to the new work that Jesus was doing. They couldn't see that he was the bridegroom. He was there. He was in their midst. It was a time for rejoicing. But they were still fasting. They were still trying to earn their religiosity. They were blind to this work of Jesus Christ. And their traditionalism, their formalism was utterly incompatible with this gospel that Jesus was preaching. And therefore Jesus is here saying something has to give. You cannot cling to your old ways of religion and cling to my new gospel at the same time. They are completely opposite. And it goes back to what we mentioned at the beginning. The gospel of man. Versus the gospel of God. As soon as we attempt to mix the gospel with something, with anything else in this life, we lose the gospel entirely. Just like mixing new wine into old wineskins results in both things being broken and lost. When you mix the gospel of grace with something other than grace, you lose the gospel altogether. The gospel cannot be commingled. It cannot be mixed with anything else. Otherwise it is forfeited. You forfeit the truth when you try and mix the truth with any amount of error. Such is why Jesus here is adamant about his message of his message of newness being received in a new way. He says here, it looks like a new family. It looks like an entirely new garment. We're not patching up the old. As he says in Isaiah 61, we are giving you a new robe of righteousness. 
And here are new skins entirely. It is entirely new because it is entirely of mercy. It's a religion of celebration over and beyond the ceremony. But look next too at this pivotal scene in verse 23. Here we have the next collision, you might say. It's the collision of rest over regulation. Look at it. And it came to pass that he went through the cornfields on the Sabbath day, and his disciples began, as they went, to pluck the ears of corn. And the Pharisees said unto him, Behold, why do they on the Sabbath day that which is not lawful? As Pastor Nathan read earlier in his translation of the scriptures, you might have noticed that it was passing through grain fields, and they were plucking heads of grain. And both are perhaps true. This word for corn is not necessarily distinguished and distinct on what it is referring to. It's more of a general term for wheat or for barley grain. And such is what the disciples were doing. They were walking along the road and they were plucking the heads of the grain as they walked. We read elsewhere in Luke 6 that as they walked they would pluck these heads and grind them in their hands and begin to eat. They were rubbing these heads of grain in their hands and eating. They were satisfying themselves and getting their sustenance. And it just so happened to be on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees noticed this. The Pharisees noticed what was happening. And to them, they were breaking the laws of the Sabbath. They were taking, again, they were taking exception at something that Jesus and the disciples were doing. And they would come up to them and say, why are you breaking the Sabbath? You might be thinking, what? Are they really doing? Well to them. To the Pharisees. They weren't just plucking. They were plucking and grinding and eating. And therefore they were quote harvesting. And harvesting on the the Sabbath. Would be akin to working. Which is something that is strictly prohibited. On the Sabbath. To them. They were breaking the law. They weren't adhering to the regulations of their religion. They weren't resting. They were working. They were working on a day which was supposed to be a cease from working. And it is true that Moses prohibited work on the Sabbath. You can read that in Exodus chapter 20. But it's not really specific on what that entails. And therefore, with that unspecificity... The Pharisees have now come in and tried to expound and give specifics on what Moses really meant. They elaborated on what did and didn't count as work. And that's why if you read some of those old Pharisaical traditions, there were over 39 groupings of regulations which you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. Including how many steps you could travel before those steps counted as work. You see, the Pharisees here were seeing themselves as the arbiters of religion. You, Jesus, and your disciples, you're breaking the law. We know the law. We are inundated with its regulations, and you are here breaking them. But in reality, they were just putting the traditions of themselves on equal standing with divine law. And here Jesus Tells them that. Look at what he says in verse 25. And he said unto them, Have ye never read? I love that phrase. You have to see the sarcasm of Jesus come through here. He is throwing the book of the law right back in their face. 
He is, he is telling people, these religious experts so-called, he is throwing the fact that they didn't really know their Bibles. Have you never read of what David did? Do you forget your history, he is saying? What David did when he had need and was, at, and was, at, at, um, was, was in hunger, he and they that were with him. How he went into the house of God, into the temple in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat but for the priests, and gave also to them that were with him. He's referencing a story from 1 Samuel chapter 21, which in David and his men come in and they are in a time of crises. In a time of great, great need. And they are made able to eat the showbread. The holy bread of the temple. And the letter of the law would see this as a violation of it. They would see it just as, as here as these disciples who were harvesting. They were breaking the law. They were breaking the holy law of God. But Jesus says this is precisely the spirit of the law. That you have been blind to. Because just as here as these disciples are plucking and eating, and just as there and when David and his men ate, the preserving of human life is more important than religious ritual. It says, the Sabbath was made for man. It was for his good. The law was made for man's good. But you have seen the letter of the law and the regulation of the law and been blinded by that. See, Jesus here is saying, as he says there in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Yes, the law has told us to rest on this day, the day of rest on the Sabbath. And that is a gift of God in his grace to us. It's a gift from the Creator. But see here, Jesus is showing and revealing that they were working so hard to rest that they were nullifying the rest. They were working so hard by adhering to all the regulations that they weren't resting at all. They were actually, in fact, working. You've missed the point, Pharisees. You've missed the point by turning this day of rest into another system of regulation and righteousness. You've turned it into another way, another sort of straitjacket, another sort of shackle by which you have inundated the religious people of this day. You've turned it into another way in which you have usurped the place of God. Such is why here he is getting them to see in this much needed conflict that he is the Sabbath Lord, not they. They aren't the arbiters of the Sabbath. Jesus is. He says, therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. I am God. I'm the creator. I'm the one who made the worlds and yes, declared on the seventh day. It'd be a day of rest, a day of Sabbath. I'm the one who is there at the beginning. I am the one who says what can and can't not be done on this day. He is the author of the Sabbath and he has authority over it. And he, as the Lord of this day, he is the one that should have been getting the attention and should have been getting the glory for it. 
Such is what the rest and the reflection were made to point us to. Point us to this Lord of the Sabbath. But the Pharisees had inundated themselves with so many regulations that they weren't resting. They weren't reflecting at all. They were just so caught up in the laundry list of things that they couldn't do. But they forgot about reflecting on the thing that they were made to do. Which is reflecting on the one who took the eternal rest for us. Who took the atonement for us. You see in verse 20. Back at that previous scene, he says, And then shall they fast in those days when the bridegroom is taken from them. It's a small hint at the crucifixion. At the day when the bridegroom, Jesus, is taken from us, there will be a moment of weeping and fasting. But he says that that's not the end because I am Lord of the Sabbath. These Pharisees were grieved at the actions of these disciples. And their focus was on themselves. They were not concerned about what the Sabbath meant. What the Sabbath represented. Only that their traditions were upheld. They were only concerned that they were the ones that were to be seen as the religious experts. That their regulations weren't broken. But as they found faith in their tradition... They were revealing what their gospel really was. It wasn't a gospel at all. It was actually a religion of legalism. A religion of self-sufficiency. A religion which was so focused on themselves that they had no room for their savior. This is what legalism is, by the way. It's a false gospel. It's a false gospel of self-sufficiency that believes that God's eternal holy law is actually keepable. We can do it. We can fulfill all the jots and tittles and small points of the law. We don't need God. We don't need a savior. We don't need a law keeper. I am good enough to keep it. I am good enough to fulfill it. If the law was keepable, if the law was fulfillable by us, where is the room for Jesus? There's no room there. If you are adhering to a keepable, fulfillable religion, there is no point of the Messiah coming and dying for you who cannot keep this law. Such is what Jesus is trying to get them to see. And that moves us into the next scene. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. We have our last sort of collision here in this section. A collision of mercy over minutia. Look what he says. And he entered again into the synagogue, and there was a man there which had a withered hand. Here again we find Jesus teaching in the place that he often loved to do, in the synagogue, in the place of worship. And a man... With a withered, a atrophied, a, a hand with shrunken muscles, he comes up to him and approaches him. But look at what's going on. And they, the same they that were approaching and talking with Jesus in the previous scenes, they watched him whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him. <laughs> They're setting Jesus up, so to speak. Perhaps that they put this man at the front of the synagogue so Jesus would have to see him. Who knows? But these Pharisees now are spying on Jesus. 
Let's see if we can catch him. Let's see if we can catch him in the act. Their intentions are entirely malicious. They're seeking to discredit and invalidate Jesus' entire claims in ministry. But I love the fact that, yes, Jesus is God. He knows exactly what they're up to. Look at the next verse. He says, it says to us, And he saith, that is Christ, saith unto the man which had the withered hand, stand forth. He knows what the Pharisees are trying to do. They're trying to set Jesus up to see if he would break the law again in the synagogue. He's aware of it. He's aware of the espionage mission going on by these Pharisees. And he, he doesn't go into the shadows. He doesn't go around the corner and try and fix this man. He brings him into greater spotlight. <laughs> you see that? He says, stand forth. Come forward. He's teaching, come before me. Everyone now sees what's going to happen. He brings everything into light. He's drawing attention to himself. He's unafraid of what the Pharisees could or might do. And here again, watch what he does. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save lives or to kill? But they held their peace. And when he had looked round about them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. Adhering to the letter, to the minutia, the small points of the law, would be to leave this man with a withered hand just as he is. That would be to do evil. The letter of the law is meant to point to the good of man. And you have made it a burden, he is saying. You have made it into something which wields death. But that's not the spirit of the law, which is the good of man, which ought to be to save this life. To heal it, it ought to be an act of mercy. And the implication here is that the Pharisees would rather their traditions be remained intact rather than this man experience healing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the scene in which Jesus sees this? He knows the hearts of these Pharisees. And that is why it says in that verse that he is grieved with holy anger at the hardness of their hearts. That they are clinging so tightly to their religiosity. They can't see that he is a God of mercy. And that their religion ought to be a religion of mercy. They are so caught up. Their hearts are so calloused and blind and hardened. They couldn't see the goodness of Jesus' good news. They had made no room for Jesus. There was no room for Christ in the religion of formalism. And this is the gospel of the Pharisees. It was a gospel of ceremony and minutia and regulation. It was a gospel of the self. A gospel of man. And yes, we might even say it is a gospel of Satan. Because he has no room for Jesus. It has no Christ in it. It's a gospel of selfishness, of self-sufficiency, of self-salvation. That I am good enough to keep the law and I'm the arbiter of the law. Therefore, I don't need a law keeper. And often I think 
We adhere to a selfish gospel without often realizing it. That we are clinging to our abilities, our formalities as our assurance of salvation. Are you, what are you clinging to for your salvation this morning? To your heritage, to your traditions, to your family, to your formalism, to your legalism, to your religion itself? Or are you clinging to the bridegroom? Are you clinging to the Savior? This message is for us too. That his message, his gospel is entirely new and different and unexpected. Because it announces all of the rest and all of the mercy that we so crave for our entire lives. Is completely given to us by mercy. And this is why we celebrate This is why we rejoice, because at this wedding, we are given the ultimate parting gift, himself. We, the wedding party, are given the ultimate gift, the groom himself. He gives himself to us, we who are his bride. This is the message of Jesus Christ, the message of his gospel, the only gospel that collides with our self-sufficient, self-saving, self-glorying gospels. And he says, what are you clinging to for your hope of glory? What are you resting in? Are you still trying to work or are you really resting? Are you resting and receiving this mercy? Or are you losing yourself in the minutia and the regulation and the ceremony of your religion? The two aren't compatible. You cannot commingle the gospel of grace with anything else. It is a gospel only of grace. Have you been made to receive that this morning? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.